Hi, everyone. I'm Bob Coughlin, President and CEO of MassBio, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to the State of Possible podcast. Before we begin our discussion, I would like to acknowledge the support of our sponsors, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Morgan Stanley, and Marsh McLennan Agency. And now, a word from Thermo Fisher Scientific. COVID-19 has spread across the globe with devastating effect. Thermo Fisher Scientific's scale and depth of capabilities have never been more vital. And our mission to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer has never been more important. At Thermo Fisher Scientific, we remain at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus and are partnering with biopharma customers who are working to develop COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. And that's just the start. Learn more at fisherside.com. That's fishersci.com. Welcome back to the State of Possible podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic remains the number one health concern around the globe as we await final clinical development and approval of multiple vaccine candidates. There are still many unanswered questions and challenges that lie ahead for the biopharma industry, health stakeholders, and governments at the federal, state, and local levels, especially around development, prioritization, and distribution of the vaccines. On this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Clement Lewin, AVP at Sanofi, who is responsible for managing Sanofi's relationship with the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority and stakeholder engagement for new vaccines at Sanofi Pasteur. And Dr. Kelly Moore, Associate Director of the Immunization Action Coalition, Adjunct Associate Professor of Health Policy at Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and until 2019, a voting member of the Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices, who has almost two decades of experience in public health and immunization strategy. Welcome, Kelly and Clem. We're thrilled to have you with us. You know, as we've all seen, an extraordinary drug development effort is underway to rapidly develop COVID-19 vaccines. Although we recognize there's still much work to be done, we're incredibly encouraged about the early results from the Pfizer and BioNTech's clinical trials. It's a reminder of our industry's commitment to addressing our world's most dire healthcare needs. Biopharma companies, academic researchers, and government agencies are collaborating like never before to compress a process that normally requires, at minimum, five years and hundreds of millions of dollars into less than a year to meet the global health demand of the runaway coronavirus. So my question is, how are the public and private sectors coming together, you know, both with scientific and financial resources and newly created entities such as Operation Warp Speed to find a vaccine for COVID-19? And, and, and what what had to be done to create them and, and or make them successful? Clem, let's start with you. What are your thoughts? Thank you very much for the, the opportunity uh, to, to talk to with you today. And as you say, it's a very exciting time with the good news from the Pfizer uh, vaccine, as I think it shows that the approach of using a spike protein can provide uh, protection against this uh, disease that's caused a public health emergency. You know, I think it's been a, a very interesting time for uh, for vaccines. Uh, it's been a remarkable effort to think that only uh, in January did we uh, discover the virus and 
as of November, we have at least some preliminary evidence that a vaccine can work. Um, how we've been able to do that is a great story. First of all, it shows that the dedication of scientists, both in industry and in the public sector to, to work on solving um, this problem. It's shown a creative effort because what we've done is worked development in parallel, so doing activities that normally would be done in sequentially, uh, doing them uh, in parallel to move things forward. This maintains the the safety and the efficacy. There's no been no corners cut, but rather companies and uh, uh, the government have risked uh, both their human capital and uh, put some money in that might not have been done. So I think it's a it's a remarkable um, effort that's occurred and, and Operation Warp Speed has certainly um, moved things forward by bringing the government resources to bear to support uh, the private sector's ability to uh, develop vaccines. Aclem, a- uh, you know, are there any new mechanisms being established to expedite availability of a vaccine? You know, what has Sanofi's approach been? And then furthermore, you know, can any of this be translated to future drug discovery and development for other indications? I, I think that's a great question. I think, first of all, we've shown that you can reduce the, the cycle time. and But as I've mentioned, it does involve risking human financial resources. So I don't know that we'll use work at this speed for something that's not a pandemic or an emerging infectious disease, disease where we need a vaccine or a therapeutic extremely rapidly. I do think, though, that very optimistic that some of the things we've learned about recruiting, uh, how to do clinical trials, uh, expedited recruiting, um, monitoring will be used to reduce the cycle time of vaccine development from the time you go into the clinic to the time you have a licensed vaccine to from five to seven years to uh, a significantly less. But do I think we're going to see uh, development at this speed for routine vaccines? Probably not, because this has really been a super, I would say, almost superhuman effort from both the the public and private sector with uh, people working 24-7 to get these vaccines um, done. No, that's some some great feedback there. You know, right now, there are currently more than 100 COVID-19 vaccine candidates under development with a number of these in human clinical trials. Some of these candidates appear close to approval, yet, and it often perplexes me and many others, public confidence in the safety and effectiveness of a vaccine seems to be eroding as opposed to getting better. And and Kelly, we're so grateful to have you join us today for, from your experience. You know, what do you think we need to do to build back this public trust to ensure acceptance of a vaccine? Because ultimately we need to get to population immunity. Well, Bob, it's great to be here with you. And I, I have to say, this is a challenge we've not ever faced before in rolling out a vaccine and and in educating the public about it. And we do have to work together with industry in new ways because the vaccines in this situation are going to be rolled out and offered to the public under likely an emergency use authorization by the FDA, which is an unfamiliar process to the public and to public health and most clinicians. Uh, And we will have very little time between the receipt of data from industry about how a vaccine works and a decision to move forward with using it, which means that we will have much more uncertainty about our vaccines 
than we typically do when we're rolling out a routine licensed vaccine. It's completely appropriate to be moving forward despite this uncertainty in the midst of an enormous uh, global crisis that is costing thousands of lives daily. So public health and industry all agree that we need to move forward without delay, but we need to work closely together to bring the public along with us to help them understand that we are not compromising anything about safety or effectiveness, but there will be areas of uncertainty about the long-term benefits of these vaccines, the possibility of long-term rare side effects. But despite that, we are going, and we are going to continue to monitor for those uh, answers, but we in the public health and vaccine development communities, if we get a vaccine candidate that looks appropriate, we will feel that it's appropriate to move forward with vaccinating the public despite that uncertainty. And that kind of messaging is quite delicate. It requires industry and public health to share more information about what we know and don't know uh, with each other and with the public, perhaps more than we have before, because we're going to need to overcome people's anxiety about taking a new vaccine. Um, and frankly, the public's trust has taken a bit of a beating this year. Uh, they've had a lot of, of, of rough experiences in 2020, and um, we need to work delicately to help them understand why it will be appropriate to get vaccinated with a new vaccine with limited information in a crisis like this. I think right now it's working fairly well. We're just getting to the start of this, but we have a long way to go because the public hasn't yet really been brought in on this process and, and what what this vaccine is going to mean for them. But there are a lot of challenges ahead. Yeah, there sure are, Kelly. And, th and thank you for your very, very important insight on that. When a safe and effective vaccine is found, which I'm confident there will be, who can you explain to our listeners who will decide how to prioritize access and what factors will be considered? It's so important for the public to, to understand more about this. Yes, the, the decision about who gets this vaccine first and why is really crucial because we, we know whenever we introduce a new vaccine, there's never enough to go around. But in this case particularly, uh, especially if a vaccine proves to be highly effective, then there's going to be far more demand than we can meet initially. And we really need to be careful about making sure people who, you know, that we prioritize key recipients first. And the people who make that decision actually uh, will be led by the, the CDC's Federal Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. This is the advisory committee that I was a part of until last summer. And this group looks at basically three pillars of information to advise the CDC as a panel of external experts on who should receive these vaccines first. And they, they look at the science. They look at how effective the, product, the specific product is that they're considering and who it works best in. They look at implementation questions, the pragmatic issues of how this vaccine will be rolled out. And then third, they look at, uh, they, they look at those two issues through an ethical framework. And the ACIP has explained to the public that the ethical framework they want to use in, includes four primary um, pillars. And those are, they want to maximize benefits and minimize harm. Uh, they want to promote justice, which is uh, uh, can be thought of as access to the vaccine, that everyone who 
needs it will have access to it. They want to mitigate health inequities. So we know certain groups have been disproportionately affected. We want to make sure that recommendations made by the ACIP address those who have been disproportionately affected by COVID-19. And then finally, they prioritize the importance of promoting transparency, acknowledging uncertainty, acknowledging what we know and don't know as we make these early decisions, and committing to reviewing data as we go forward and, and critically revising their recommendations over time as new information uh, indicates that a revision is necessary. So the ACIP is looking at the information about specific vaccines through that lens and will recommend to the CDC who should get this vaccine first. I can say that, um, that when we think about who will get it first, Across the board, people are consistent in thinking that healthcare professionals, those who take care of others, should be among the first to receive these vaccines, followed by very quickly by people who are at high risk for complications and serious illness. But the ACIP has committed not to make their final recommendations until they see the details of the specific vaccines they'll be recommending. Hey, Clem, from an industry standpoint, uh, what are some of your thoughts or how does industry look at prioritization? Um, well, industry is, is very well used to working with the ACIP process. You know, I think we, we, we completely support the, the approach of, um, that uh, Kelly has described uh, because it's a, it's a proven process. The ACIP has been doing this for um, uh, regular vaccines for many, many years. They have a very strong evidence to recommendations process uh, that they can, that they uh, use. And, um, they also have experience in making recommendations for the H1N1 pandemic. So um, I think we have a lot of confidence in that process. I, I'd also highlight um, we believe that the uh, VRPAC reviews, the FDA's advisory committee that will look at the safety and efficacy of the vaccine is uh, beneficial because um, industry is committed to uh, developing safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines, and we believe that uh, an independent review process is critical to assuring public confidence in the vaccine, and um, we will work to share our information and be as transparent as possible to uh, make certain that they have the information that they need to make an evidence-based recommendation. You're listening to the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. We're going to pause for a brief moment to introduce you to one of our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. Today's episode of State of Possible Podcast with Bob Coughlin is sponsored by Morgan Stanley. The competition for talent has become a serious challenge for the life sciences industry. The ability to hire, retain, and align great people is imperative to solving the most pressing medical issues. But the competition has become highly complex with global networks, changing views of careers, and rapidly evolving employee demands. That's where Morgan Stanley at Work can help. Our comprehensive suite of workplace financial solutions is dedicated to helping you better attract, retain, and reward your employees so you can focus on the science. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash at work. We now return to State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. Let's move on to distribution, folks. When the COVID-19 vaccine or vaccines become available, you know, the number one concern will be distribution. 
and giving the widespread impact of this disease, which is only getting wider, COVID-19 represents an unprecedented challenge that will require scale not previously undertaken. So, you know, numerous challenges remain regarding vaccine distribution as well as unanswered questions. So, you know, one, how do we, how do we deliver and track the necessary doses for inoculation while also ensuring, you know, safety requirements are met? And how do we create cohesive administration by local, state, and federal health agencies? And why don't we start with you, Kelly? What are you seeing out there around this topic? Well, there's already a huge amount of work going on between state and local public health and our traditional partners with the CDC, uh, and also involving partners that we don't usually work with who are a part of the Operation Warp Speed initiative, including military logistics experts and others who can enhance our ability to think through these enormous logistic challenges. But we, we really, in public health, go back to our most recent experience with this, which was just over 10 years ago with the 2009 H1N1 pandemic. And although that was a, a much simpler process, a single-dose vaccine distributed that's already licensed and doesn't require extraordinary storage conditions, we've built on the experiences and lessons learned from that to inform our planning around the distribution and tracking of the coronavirus vaccine. And so there's an enormous amount of work going on, but it, it is incredibly complicated because the challenge of getting a vaccine ready to distribute that is safe and effective as quickly as possible has meant trade-offs in some of the programmatic conveniences that clinics around the country are used to uh, having, like a pre-filled syringe or a single-dose file or a vaccine that's stable in the refrigerator. And so there's an awful lot of work programmatically being done right now to prepare clinics to receive and properly handle vaccines that may require ultra-low temperatures or, or, or freezer temperatures that will require timed dilution and administration schedules uh, that are strict. And, and um, I expect that because this is moving so quickly, when we do have approval for an emergency use authorization and vaccines do begin to flow using the federal backbone of the Vaccines for Children program that all states participate in and, and using the IT infrastructure that has been created to support vaccine distribution and tracking, that we're, gonna, we're going to experience some significant bumps in the road as we work out the details and the kinks of, of getting this right. But I have great confidence that we'll adjust and adapt uh, as we deliver those vaccines and start tracking them. But this is truly unprecedented. There's never been a more complex vaccine distribution and administration program than this one, most especially because we're trying to keep up with two doses per person and giving this to potentially hundreds of millions of people in the United States. So our IT systems in public health will be stressed and strained as never before, uh, but I hope it will lead to a sustained investment and value of those systems as we go forward. Yeah, absolutely. Clem, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, well, I think Kelly summed it up, and I think what you're going to see is somewhat of a passing of the baton because um, the uh, manufacturers are, are doing the, the heavy lifting on the clinical development of showing the vaccines are safe and effective and then actually producing the doses needed. But the call it the final mile from getting the vaccine from the factory 
into uh, people's arms. It's going to be our, our public sector partners that are going to take the lead on that. And um, obviously, we will work closely with them to do whatever we can to support um, their efforts. Um, but uh, it is a passing of the baton. And I think, as Kelly said, it hopefully this will also demonstrate the importance of having a robust public health infrastructure so that we can respond to these public health emergencies, but also for their ability to keep the the day-to-day immunization going, because we shouldn't forget that uh, in addition to having to deliver the COVID vaccine, uh, we're delivering uh, a, a very large number of influenza vaccines this season, and we also need to make certain that everybody gets their, uh, particularly children, get their routine vaccines as well. Yeah, it's so true. And, and this this initiative it, it, between industry, it, you know, we talk about government and our military from a logistics standpoint, working closely hand in hand with our, our local public health officials. It's truly going to be a, a huge logistical task. So. The, you know, the question would be funding. I mean, I, uh, what is and or should be the strategy for funding such an initiative? I don't know. You may have or may have not seen 60 Minutes last night. There was an episode covered the military's involvement. And we're talking tens of billions of dollars. Is this the way we should fund this? The funding for vaccine distribution and administration is sort of, I look at this as issue in two parts. States are going to need sort of short-term funding to support implementation of the vaccine program. That means personnel. We need personnel to backfill those routine immunization clinics and other services because, as Clem mentioned, we can't let those drop while we're focused on COVID-19. So we'll need a, a huge number of people to work on these programs, training, infrastructure, uh, and, and resources, investments that, that are short-term in public health and right now, we have had states have received about $200 million to plan for the distribution of this vaccination program. That is just 2% or less of the amount of money we have so far spent on vaccine development and procurement. Uh, more than $10 billion have gone towards development and procurement to date. So clearly, we will require much more than a 2% investment in delivering the vaccine to the public because that's where the payoff occurs. The public health payoff, the, the, the pushing back of COVID-19 takes place through vaccination, not through just a, achieving the development of a vaccine. So there's much more investment needed. But then the second phase is really investing in the long-term infrastructure of public health. And, and Clem mentioned this as well. There's a tremendous value to investing in public health infrastructure so that it can take care of our needs on an ongoing basis with the routine foodborne outbreak or the measles outbreak that occurs. But then it's also prepared to respond to the next pandemic, whatever that turns out to be. Um, You can't expect a weak infrastructure to be the kind of robust infrastructure that's needed uh, just by throwing money at it at the last minute. That takes years of developing capacity and expertise. And, and so my hope is that we will see long-term surge in investments in public health infrastructure that will allow us to have a swift response to the next crisis. Um, couldn't agree with uh, more with Kelly. And I, I think, um, first of all, you know, we've the, the investment in 
vaccine development and the the as you mentioned general per, permanent operational warp speed the dod's participating in supporting logistics and vaccine development has been truly impressive but um as uh, uh kelly said the critical step is to be able to vaccinate and therefore i think we do need to make certain that our public health partners at the federal state and local level have the resources necessary to um, not only uh, ensure that they can administer the vaccine, but also the IT infrastructure to track um, and make certain that uh, we know who got the vaccine and what vaccine they got, because they're not going to be interchangeable. And as was mentioned, there are two doses. And also, finally, for both monitoring of vaccine safety and efficacy to help, as, um, as, as Kelly mentioned, the ACIP make a longer-term decision. So I think that's critical. And then I'd like to emphasize what Kelly said about building our public health infrastructure, because for me, one of the big um, positives that I hope will come out of this uh, public health emergency is that we realize the importance of having a strong public health infrastructure to enable us to respond to these uh, crises and that you cannot wait till the crisis is here. So it's a bit like um, we invest in aircraft carriers and missiles, not that we want to use them, but for defense, that we think of uh, public health as our best uh, defense against some of these uh, emerging infectious diseases or pandemics. Just tell me in 30 seconds or less, what what does the future look like? Is the future bright? Let's start with you, Clem. Yeah, I think the, you know, after today's news, I think, or the news about Pfizer, I think the future's bright because it looks like we do have a vaccine or the spike protein vaccines will work. We will um, be able to uh, get out of this uh, public health emergency and, and life will return to normal. I'm optimistic that some of the lessons learned and some of the technologies such as mRNA that have come out of the pandemic will lead to uh, new vaccines and we'll develop them faster. And I hope um, that the uh, that dealing with a pandemic that we don't forget and we have a new respect for public health and a willingness uh, to invest in it. So hopefully there'll be some positives out of this, although 2020 has been an extremely uh, difficult year for many of us. Yeah, sure. Has. It's been one for the books. Kelly, uh, please, what do you think the future looks like? Is it bright? I think the future is brighter now. I'm certainly encouraged by the early information, as Clem said, um, that it looks like that this strategy for developing vaccines against the coronavirus appears to be effective. And I am encouraged that we have accomplished this extraordinary feat this year, despite how awful it has been for everybody, uh, of, of bringing something from, um, you know, recognition of a pandemic pathogen to vaccines that may be available within a year. Um, that's extraordinary. And I think it, um, it shows the value of these investments. I hope that this means we're not going to go back to business as usual with public health in its sphere and industry working separately in its sphere. Um, this isn't all about business. This is about the, the life and health and safety of the human race. And uh, we are important team members. And I think we've realized that we really are a team this year more than ever. And I'm hopeful that the, the relationships built this year are going to continue and are going to continue to serve humanity well. 
You're listening to the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. We're going to pause for a brief moment to introduce you to one of our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. Marsh and McLennan Agency is a regional insurance brokerage firm with access to global resources focused on the life science community, representing over 1,000 biotechs across the U.S. We work with life science companies from conception, clinical trials, and product launch to domestic and global expansion, and provide products, service, expertise, and advocacy in the areas of employee benefits, risk management, liability, and more. Visit MarshMMA.com to learn why we are the partner of choice for VC firms, service providers, and life science advocates. That's MarshMMA.com. You're listening to the State of Possible podcast. And now, back to Bob Coughlin. I want to thank my guests, Clement Lewis and Dr. Kelly Moore, for joining me on today's episode of the State of Possible podcast and providing their perspectives on what will be some very important next steps around this ongoing issue. While many details remain uncertain, what is clear is that this is an historically complex challenge and one that will require a collaborative effort from all. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Morgan Stanley, Thermo Fisher Scientific, and Marsh McLennan Agency for their support of this podcast. In December, we will be joined by Jeremy Levin, Chairman and CEO of Ovid Therapeutics, and Nina Shelson, General Partner at Canaan Partners, who will provide a 2021 biotech outlook for the industry. Join us then on the State of Possible podcast. Thank you for joining us on the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin, and a special thanks to our sponsors, Thermo Fisher Scientific, Morgan Stanley, and Martian McLennan Agency. I also want to thank Jenny Nason and Zach Stanley of MassBio. You can listen to the State of Possible podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and with all Android players. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast using your favorite directory. Finally, if you know anyone who should be featured on this podcast, please contact me at paulkidwell at comcast.net. That's paulkidwell at comcast.net.